It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. I've rewritten this introduction a few times, and here's the version I've settled on. It's good to know what the hell you're talking about. If you're talking to someone about ancient history, for instance, you should know who the Mesopotamians were and what they were all about. If you're talking baseball, you should understand the infield fly rule. And if you're talking about mental health, it is a good thing to know what bipolar disorder and bipolar 2 are, especially because those terms get tossed around pretty loosely. In fact, it's probably more important to know about bipolar than the Mesopotamians or the infield fly rule because it comes up more often. It's more likely to have an impact on your life. Bipolar could affect you or someone close to you. So spotting it means someone can get help for it and have a better chance at a much better life. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the writer and commentator Anna Marie Cox about her life with bipolar disorder, what it means on a day-to-day basis, how she has learned to manage it and live a good life. First, I talk with Dr. Ken Duckworth. He's the medical director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness And, as I come to discover in this interview, someone with a very personal connection to bipolar. I let off by asking, what is bipolar disorder? So, uh, let's start with humility and curiosity. So, we don't know... I thought we were going to start, but all right. Well, life is funny. (laughs) Bipolar disorder is a description of a specific set of symptoms that has been organized into categories. Now, the question is, what's the underlying neuroscience validity? That is to say, is bipolar disorder a spectrum? We divide it into several categories. The truth is, there's a lot we don't know. We do know the descriptions ring true. That is to say... Uh, a sustained period, typically of one week or more, of super high energy, risk-taking behavior, fast talking, coupled with psychosis and a hospitalization. Typically the definition of mania, right? So that's your classic bipolar one. Doesn't have to have depression. My father had classic bipolar one. And he would get psychotic, he would get hospitalized, And it couldn't have been more delightful, engaging, and fun the rest of the time. So this is the reason I became a psychiatrist when I had a natural interest in history, uh, because he was so compelling a person and so ill. I really wanted to understand this thing that took him from me. And so uh, now that I have gray hair, I have a little more insight into it. So I think it's important to recognize that over time with neuroscience, we might learn that there's more than one kind of bipolar disorder. Our descriptions now, our frameworks are descriptive. If you have these symptoms for this amount of time, you fit in with this. So they're reliable. Are they valid at the neuroscience level? We have a lot of work to do as a field to understand it. So then what we know is that people who have these symptoms, there is, there is a There is a large enough group of people who have this broad set of symptoms and behaviors such that we could say this is a thing called bipolar disorder. That's right. That's right. And uh, this is fairly common. Uh, Millions of people have this condition. 
this is a condition of the brain. So people would say, hey, wait a minute, didn't you just say we don't know the true neuroscience underpinnings? The answer is yes, we don't know the true neuroscience underpinnings. And we are certain this is the brain because there's certain disturbances that you see with different aspects of kind of detailed neuroscience. The same problem occurs with the medication. We know that some medications impact neuroplasticity or membrane stabilization, and a different medication might impact an upstream neurotransmitter, but we're not certain what the element is of that medicine that works. But we do, however, know that it usually works. That's the honest truth of where we are now. And it's important to be straight with people about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. My, my term over the years has been the brain is a mysterious pile of goo. And I think it's, I think we're, we're getting at the same thing. Okay, well, you know, I think the average neuroscientist would probably say, uh, John, we know a little more than that. In fact, we know more today than we've ever known. It's just very humbling how complex it is. So are you saying then that the, the bipolar disorder is characterized by those highs? Doesn't it also have to be get to the other pole in bipolar and be characterized by equally crashing lows? It's very common that people also have depressive episodes. But not universal. Be, not universal. It used to be called manic depressive illness. And then they changed it to two poles, high and low. The highs may be super high energy, creative, high risk, but it also might be irritable, hostile. So it's complicated. For some people, it can be seductive, as it was for my dad. Uh, he would win sales trophies in the year before his hospitalization. So he was probably funnier, more electric, more confident, needed less sleep, worked harder, right? And then the next year, I didn't put this all together until I was, you know, halfway through medical school. I'm like, wait a minute. That big, beautiful trophy is the year before he was in Northville State Hospital again. So for him, I think it was somewhat seductive to have the mania. And, you know, this is one of the things that I've observed in my travels. There's only two conditions that people can at moments want to have in all of medicine. And that's the highs of mania leading up to the highs and pregnancy. Everything else in medicine, you're trying to avoid things for the most part, right? So very few experiences, like overall, are desired experiences. So if this used to be called manic depression, why the name change? Uh, that's a good question, probably above my pay grade. But I think that the idea was to illustrate two poles. I actually think manic depressive illness is a very good description of it because it's right in the title. Those, those would seem like poles to me, mania and depression. Right, exactly. So that's a, another way to think about it. Uh, but I don't, I'm not offended when somebody uses the term, I have manic depressive illness. I think that's a term that was around for a long time. And I think it's important to recognize that. And then what is the difference between bipolar disorder and bipolar disorder two? So one way to think about this is that bipolar disorder may exist on a spectrum and not every person looks alike. The famous physician Osler said, it's more important to know the patient with the disease than what disease the patient has, right? So let's, for, let's say that at the beginning. But if you were to categorize this with my asterisk 
that these are symptom-driven categorizations. A person with bipolar 2 can't have true mania that I described. You can't have more than a week of sustained elevated mood, fast-talking, pressured speech, high-risk psychosis, and hospitalization. If you have those things, it's a true manic episode, you have bipolar 1. So hypomania is medical talk for less than mania, just as hypertension is medical talk for too much blood pressure, right? So hypomania is less than that full manic episode. So it's less in time, less in intensity. So a person might have days of feeling uh, more creative, like they need less sleep, uh, more engaged in the world. They might feel funnier. Uh, they might feel better. But it's typical for people with bipolar 2 in particular to spend more time in depression. And so, you know, every person is individual, right? And so understanding the portfolio of time that you're above a baseline of euthymic, so-called normal mood, right? So if you have a few hypomanic episodes and they always happen in the summer and many depressive episodes and they happen in the winter, you might have a seasonal component to your mood disorder on top of another level of understanding of your probable bipolar 2. Okay. Now, a lot of people feel kind of energized sometimes, down other times, and sometimes it's, it's tied to events in their life, and sometimes, yeah, I'm just feeling kind of lousy these days. When does it become a diagnosable condition? When does it become something other than people have varying moods? Uh, mania, um, uh, like the Supreme Court justice said about pornography, I know it when I see it. That is to say, a manic episode is not subtle. This is something that will profoundly impact a family system. This is something that the person may not have a good memory for, as if it were a dream sequence. But they do know that the family saying, after you started to get funnier and sell more uh, at your work, you know, if you've ended up in this hospital, we became very concerned about you because you began to hear voices. And the psychosis might be related to sleep loss. If you deprive humans of sleep, sooner or later, they will begin to have psychotic-like experiences. And so people with mania are sleeping one to three hours a night, feel great. This is different than having trouble falling asleep. So I'd say what's nice about this from a can you recognize it is mania is fairly unmistakable. Now, there are medical causes of everything in the psychiatry realm. So you have to make sure the person doesn't have hyperthyroidism, have they haven't taken a ton of stimulants to stay up all night for exams, right? You have to make sure that other pieces of the puzzle are attended to. But a manic episode is more than a week. Uh, very high, energized, goal-directed behavior. So these people aren't unfocused, um, they may believe that they're writing the great American novel and they're working on it in real time, right? And uh, there's no evidence that they've been able to do that. So good thing about bipolar disorder is it's often treatable. It's often workable. It's not easy. It's a difficult thing to take on because commonly it occurs younger in life. 
And while you're forming your identity, I'm so sympathetic to people who also have to integrate a part of themselves. Again, this should not define you. But I think that trying to integrate the idea, well, I have a vulnerability on top of my quest for uh, my identity is important. You, you say it's treatable. What's done to treat bipolar? Well, first of all, is to have some acknowledgement of the vulnerability. Sometimes when people have an illness that involves psychosis, they can't see that they have it. So one of the great threshold questions is, can you take in the possibility that you might have this vulnerability? And I know that seems very 101 basic, but I think this is important because if your wife can say, uh, Ken, when you get up at 4 a.m., right, and sing a certain song, that's likely to be the precursor to an episode. One of the things we've learned is some people's episodes follow very specific patterns. So you have to have the strength to see it, and you have to have the strength in an ideal world to talk about it with someone in your life who can say this to you without you becoming defensive. So the first thing is kind of acknowledgement and acceptance, which I think is challenging. I just want to acknowledge that. Then there's the whole idea of your body and attending to your body. I've had patients who are very good at going to bed at nine o'clock at night, working out hard after their 6 a.m. wake up and attending to their level of stress. Easier said than done. But this is the idea of so-called social rhythm therapy, that your body may have more vulnerability to getting out of kilter. You structure it. Now, that may not be as much fun as you want. The Netflix show might be compelling and you want to watch the rest of it. But people who are devoted to this are saying, okay, I, this is what I do. This is how I help to avoid episodes. Uh, East-West travel, night jobs, avoid these things. Uh, people with bipolar disorder that hop on a flight, they go to Paris, uh, they will have jet lag and feel crummy. People with a bipolar vulnerability may have worse than that. And uh, I think it's really important, especially going east, just to know. I saw this in my own dad. And the only time they ever went to Europe, he arrived psychotic and came back psychotic. And uh, I was like, huh, not interesting, because most people just get jet lag. Well, it turns out he was the beginning of my understanding of that whole process. I had a patient who was very successful who would fly to uh, Europe and become psychotic and hospitalized every single trip. And I said to him, you're quite well off. Why don't you take the Queen Mary or equivalent? And he did. And so he was able to not disrupt. Same thing with night jobs. Hey, I have this great opportunity. Uh, I'm going to be working nights for such and such a company. Well, be careful with that attending to your social rhythm. You see this in resonance in psychiatry. Many people with bipolar disorder are brilliant and uh, very successful, and they run into trouble when you start to sleep deprive them. You put them on call every four nights. Again, treatable, something to note, but I would say that's not rare. So what's done in terms of medication? So in addition to all those other things, and I really uh, want to emphasize, this is more than meds, right? Many people find it's important to use medications to reduce the frequency and intensity of episodes. And I saw this in my own dad. And um, medications are often effective. Now, what's complicated about this, John, is there's no one size fits all. 
And a pregnant woman has a different risk profile than a person who's had a dozen episodes, has a different risk profile than a person who has a co-occurring addiction. So the idea is, take a look at the person in front of you and really try to sort this out. So I can't say, oh, everybody does well on lithium. That's actually not true. Lithium is an amazing drug. The third element on the periodic table saved my father's life. It is well established to reduce the outcome of suicidal behavior. We don't understand why. Towns that have lithium mines in them have fewer suicide attempts than towns that don't. We don't understand it, right? So lithium has serious side effects if it comes your way in terms of uh, kidney uh, problems, which may come 35 years later. But, you know, you may have tremor. You may find you go into the bathroom a lot to pee. All these medicines, like everything in life, have multiple sides to them. There are other medicines. There are second-generation antipsychotics that turn out to be helpful for some aspects of mania. There are some medicines that help with the depressive episode more than the manic episode. So to me, curiosity and humility is how I approach it as a doctor. I try things with people. I explain to them the most common and the most serious risks that they may encounter. And then we move forward and continuously learn. Continuously learn. You took that night job. That didn't go well. Uh, let's make sure we've put that in the knowledge category going forward. You know, this medicine is very helpful to you, but it's also problematic perhaps under a stressful time in terms of side effects, perhaps under a stressful time, we go back to that. We bring it in the bullpen, right? So it's the left-handed reliever who can strike anyone out, but he's got a bit of an attitude and you don't really want him around all the time, right? And you don't want him a second inning. You come in to pitch to one batter. So this is a little bit the way, like the way people with ADHD use stimulants. Often people use stimulants to prepare for an exam. So most people with bipolar disorder need medications, but they also need all the other things, including pattern recognition. And this is either done with psychotherapy or in a group or in a support. Know your patterns. It took me till I was 40 years old to realize that my dad only got sick in the summer. Wouldn't that have been helpful if I had the math to figure that out when I was eight or someone in my family did? So what does it mean? It means you can enjoy college football season knowing that he's very low risk to have any trouble. One of the reasons I love college football. And April is a pressure point because it's coming. Light cues are coming along. More light can lead to more risk of mania for some people. So he had a seasonal component. And so pattern recognition, very important, very valuable. When I drink alcohol, here's what happens to me. When I break up with a girlfriend, here's what happens to me, right? Like know the stresses and the impact. It's also complicated, John, by the fact that many people's bipolar disorder presents with an episode of depression. So they may feel that they were misdiagnosed, right? Well, wait, I was told I had depression. Now you tell me I have bipolar disorder. And what's tricky about this is you have to watch the movie the first episode of depression is that, let's assume it meets criteria for major depression, but that's a common feature of later mania. More with Dr. Ken Duckworth in just a moment. 
from the internationally acclaimed creators of Who Shot Ya comes the movie podcast Maximum Film, starring producer and film festival programmer Drea Clark as a woman bound by passion. I saw this eight months ago on the festival circuit, and I loved it. Film critic Alonzo Duralde as a man corrupted by greed. Why watch one Hallmark Christmas movie when I can watch seven? And comedian Ifiwadiwe as a man protecting a love that society simply won't accept. I think Pacific Rim is a perfect movie. And if you can't accept that, then I want you out of my life. From the makers of the movie podcast, Who Shot Ya? comes Maximum Film. That's right. We changed the name of our show to Maximum Film. But don't worry. We're still a movie review show that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. So tune in to Maximum Film at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, kid. Your dad tell you about the time he broke Stephen Dorff's nose at the Kids' Choice Awards? In Dead Pilot Society, scripts that were developed by studios and networks but were never produced are given the table reads they deserve. When I was a kid, I had to spend my Christmas break filming a PSA about angel dust. So yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. Presented by Andrew Reich and Ben Blacker. Dead Pilot Society, twice a month on MaximumFun.org. You know, the show you like, that hobo with the scarf who lives in a magic dumpster. (laughs) Doctor Who? Yeah! Anecdotally, I've heard of misdiagnosis of bipolar. People talk about how they thought they had it, and then they conclude, or their doctor concludes that, no, they really don't. Is misdiagnosis or misidentification more common with bipolar than with other disorders? That's a good question. Humility and curiosity again. So people with borderline personality disorder are frequently felt like they were misdiagnosed as having bipolar disorder and the converse. So in borderline personality disorder, there's a dysregulation of physiology that's hour to hour and day to day. It's not discrete episodes. And so somebody who sees a patient who looks reactive and has dysregulation in a snapshot, might come to a different conclusion than a person who's watched the movie. Bipolar disorder, for many people, they have periods of normal functioning that can last for years. It's not typically true of a person with, for instance, borderline personality disorder. That's a good example of a diagnosis that is over and under called on each side. And this is why NAMI's so great, because we encourage people to be as self-aware as they can be, to be the best trackers of their own knowledge so that you can increase your chance of learning as you go. It seems more important than to, to do this kind of note taking that you're talking about. Um, you know, Oh, I respond like this when I travel, I respond like this when I, when I drink. And that just, it seems like a really good idea, regardless of any mental health condition you're in to just be aware and and keep a journal and try to sketch out this, uh, this thing that is your mind. This is advanced recovery, John. So, you know, I, when I'm helping other people, let's say as a peer navigator, my episodes seem to be less present for me because my stress is reduced because I'm integrating this knowledge and helping others. But as you said, when I drink, it's a frequent trigger for me. So when I go to a celebratory event at work, I have to be careful not to have the three beers they offer you. Now, nobody wants to be that person, but if you've learned for yourself that's a trigger, it's important to respect that. 
And it seems like that's more important than uh, getting to a definition of major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, whatever, whatever the, the term with the capital letters is, it's, is it less important to figure out which of those capital letter terms you, you adhere to than just knowing who you are and what sets you off? This is where I say it depends. Right? So there are some things that are transdiagnostic. Self-care, aerobic exercise, stress modulation, giving to others, spiritual or community connections. Those are transdiagnostic concepts, right? For some people, it's really important to know your diagnosis. If you have borderline personality disorder, lithium will simply be a risk for you, right? You need a, a psychotherapy that is devoted to coping strategies that will reduce your risk of self-harm called DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy Interview, uh, uh, developed by the genius Marshall Linehan, right? And randomized controlled trials, effective. So it's complicated because some of these ideas are transdiagnostic and some of them, it actually matters what your diagnosis is. If you have bipolar disorder, you may be a person for whom antidepressants trigger you from depression into mania. It's not true in every case. You need to know that. If you simply have depression, then the treatment-resistant depression algorithm or framework is different, right? So it's complicated, John. Some things you need to know the diagnosis. Some things are co-occurring. You have a trauma history in bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder in bipolar disorder, substance use disorder in bipolar disorder. You do have to have more self-awareness because you may have more points of vulnerability, but you can develop a plan with that self-knowledge. This is a, a question I think I already know the answer to, but uh, but let's get it on, on the record. When should someone go get this checked out for themselves if they're worried that they might be bipolar? Well, first of all, you should be congratulated for considering the possibility. These conditions are common. They're ordinary. There is no health without mental health. And if you have a family history of, of mood disorders, know that. Have a conversation with your kids about that. You know, my dad had quite intense bipolar disorder. My kids all know it. Someday when I'm not here on this planet, if they were to develop a vulnerability in the postpartum space, for example, they might say, oh, that's right. Pop-up had bipolar disorder. I wonder if I should get help. So the first thing is the ability to conceptualize the possibility. It's very human to not want to have something. Very human. I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, functioning. Impact in your life. Functioning duration. If you've had a clear manic episode, and it's not because you've used stimulants or other substances, uh, you haven't used hallucinogenic medicine, you know, um, uh, compounds, and you don't have an underlying medical condition, you need treatment. And you should get treatment because episodes can be reduced, reduced in frequency and intensity. And it is quite possible to live a very good life with bipolar disorder, for example, or with depression. And uh, you know a lot about this in depression mode, John. Again, the best podcast title of all time. Like the possibility that you might have it and that you want to seek help and work the problem is very valuable. We know that half of people with conditions don't get help. 
And so the first step, which, you know, again, I salute all your work, John, but this podcast in particular, this is a piece of the human experience. People don't want to have cancer. They don't want to have diabetes. They don't want to have a mood disorder. These are things that happen. We don't know why. You know, we don't know why people develop cancer. I just want to acknowledge the fact that while I talked about how humble we have to stay in mental health, they don't know how propofol works. When you get your big toe uh, surgerized and the anesthesiologist puts you under, they don't know how propofol works. I want to emphasize this. So it's not just, oh my God, psychiatry, you don't know anything. We call it essential hypertension. Do you know what that means, John? No, I don't. Essential means we don't know what causes it. So, I mean, thank you for that. So, you know, you pay $250,000 to learn these fancy terms. Well, this person has essential hypertension. Anyone can see that. Well, what does that mean? We don't know the cause. So thank you. Almost all hypertension in America is we don't know the cause. So the, the key to this is we're on a fairly level playing field. When a person develops leukemia, we don't know the cause. We also know that there's treatment. We have some ideas about how the treatment might work. And often people get better. So in this way, we are very closely aligned with our medical brethren, even though we still need to ask people what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you. My understanding is that it's largely uh, humors being misaligned or Mm. demons. Mm. Mm. Humans and demons. I think you forgot bloodletting. That's why leeches are so important to have a jar (laughs) around the house. Well, John, I think it's valuable to have your options open, but as with the medieval catapult, probably not useful in terms of life force. Taking a good family history, knowing yourself, knowing when you responded to Depakote four years ago and you've gone off of it for whatever reason, remember that. When you go see the next practitioner, they'll say, well, it works for you. Well, I don't know. Have a little folder. It's okay. You have a folder on other things have a folder on the treatments that helped you. I think this is very positive and it helps the psychiatrist do a better job. We don't have genetic tests for what medicines are effective. Don't spend a lot of money for that. Spend the same $400 getting a comprehensive family history. That's where I'm at now. I think we'll have genetic tests in the future. I do think that's coming, but I think it's really important to understand your family history if you have it. If it's possible, talk to your family about it. One of the most educational things I ever did in terms of my personal health was writing a book about my mental health journey. And then starting, you know, in the middle of writing a sentence, I would realize, oh, this is because of the thing that happened four chapters ago. It's like reading a novel, like, oh, that's where that character goes. Of course, that's where they would end up. (laughs) But it's all self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-learning. And this is, again, what I encourage people to really engage in if they can. Uh, You'll be better off. And, John, you're a beautiful example of that. Well, you know, it's uh, if you if you can't read uh, Dostoevsky, then just write your own novel about yourself. (laughs) Dr. Ken Duckworth, thank you so much. John, keep up the great work. And uh, I look forward to seeing you another time. That's Dr. Ken Duckworth of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I was editing this interview and it struck me how kind of miraculous of an opportunity we have with podcasts. We just listened to a half hour discussion with Ken, the medical director for NAMI, one of the top mental health experts in the country. 
where he told you all about bipolar and some unexpected, fascinating stuff about his dad. That's just so cool that we get to hear that. This isn't a transition. I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate that. Okay, now comes the transition. So we've had a look at what bipolar is from a doctor. Let's find out how it feels, what it's like to live with every day. Anna Marie Cox is a writer and political commentator, and she's the host of the podcast with friends like these. When did the diagnosis of bipolar enter your life? When I was in treatment. <laughs> um, in treatment for? Drug and alcohol dependency, if we're going to be very politically correct about what you call it. And much as w with the diagnosis of being an alcoholic, it was really helpful in understanding my own experience. Like something clicked. I was like, oh, I think we've talked about this before. It, it's the feeling of, okay, I'm crazy, but I'm crazy in a really specific way that there is help for, <laughs> that other people have, and there are solutions, or at least there's recovery, and there's there are ways to treat it. The way it made sense of my life, number one, it's pretty common. I shouldn't say common, but it, something you see with people who have bipolar disorder is self-medicating with alcohol. Downers, I think, are actually kind of the, for me, what I gravitated to. I mean, every, other people might go a different direction. Also, alcohol is just really readily available in our culture. <laughs> you know, I knew that I had a, some sort of clinical depression. And the part that's the mania or hypomania is I think both harder to diagnose because it's also a way of functioning that we tend to think of as like good. Like, oh, that person's really busy. Very productive. <laughs> Very productive. <laughs> and so it's hard to distinguish between like sometimes from the outside, I think it's hard to distinguish between someone who's in a, a hypomanic state and someone who is just really ambitious. But for me, the part that kind of clicked was my risk-taking behavior which just didn't seem to fit in with the rest of me. Like, what kind of risks were you taking? I mean, I mean, the kinds of risks that a lot of alcoholics take in terms of like where I was and like, you know, who I hung out with and what state of mind I was in. There was also, you know, some shopping uh, problems, overspending and kind of like not even thinking about it. Um, there was some stuff that would be harder to kind of, again, sort of looks like maybe ambition, but like I would start these enormous projects and <laughs> couldn't follow through. Could not you, follow through. You can't through. sustain that level of, uh, right. of intensity to the end right. of something. I didn't really have the stay up all night stuff. I mean, I would, I mean, you know, occasionally, but like I'd really get into something like a project, like a more short-term project, like rearranging the entire closet system in the house, you know? And it had to um, be done right then. It had yeah. to. And I still see that in myself, by the way. Like I still see, I wonder if there's an over, I think a lot of these, you know, mental health diagnoses have overlaps. And I think there's a part of me that's, I can't decide if it's OCD or ADHD, but like if I get in, in a project comes across my field of vision sometimes, like I can't let go of it. Like, I have to just finish it like it still. And that's just probably like a 
What are those I mean, transom I, projects? What are those ones coming across? What kind of thing? They the can be something again? silly. Closet stuff. Um, it's a lot of times tech. Like if I have a problem with my computer or a problem with like some kind of like techie thing, like I won't let go. I can't let go of it. It'll bother me if I don't finish it. And then last night really specifically, I was doing this project of like, it's so silly. But like I was doing this craft project with like glass bottles and you had to like clean them off and make them like really like get all the label stuff off. And I just like couldn't stop. <laughs> until you got all of them cleaner until yeah. what? Yeah. It was up a little later than I should have been. But I just kept being like, I kept like trying to be like, oh, I should go to bed. No, I have to finish. I can finish this. But like, what would it be to like totally take that out of my personality too? Like, I don't know. Like that's bottles, I guess, but smudgy bottles. But you also, I mean, I know this about you. You have perfectionist tendencies yeah. too. So like if you wanted to get all those bottles clean, like who's talking there? Is the addictive personality talking? <laughs> the bipolar talking? Is the perfectionism talking? Yes. Yes. It all, I mean, like I said, I think it's all kind of mixed up together. So like the project taking on and some of the projects being unreasonable, like the one that I, I always mention is because it happened right before I went to treatment. And so it's kind of clear in my mind. It was also at the time when I was like, what am I doing? I wanted to write a book about Easter Island. <laughs> Do you know anything about Easter Island? No, I don't. And like, I just ordered like just every book there is on Easter Island and like, <laughs> and talked about it a lot. And, and like tell, want to tell people about it. Right. Do you go as far as to like write up a proposal, contact an agent? I think like I, I didn't contact an agent. I think I did. I do have a book agent. I think I might've told him about it. Um, and I did kind of like write up this like, you know, kind of idea for it. And then like a few days later, I'm kind of like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, this is, this is sort of interesting, but I can't do this right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> And then I'd feel terrible about myself. Okay. Well, talk about that. So you, you get the high, you get the, the mania going. And then- it And again, it's not like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you talk, the person you talk to can sort of talk about the difference between like mania, like, ah, I mean, I don't want to make, I don't want to stereotype any of it. But sometimes I think the bipolar two stuff doesn't look like the mania maybe that people see on TV. Okay. Like it's not necessarily like an obvious thing until you kind of know what you're dealing with. And then you're like- it's the other just thing an enhanced kind of thing. It's just a, a it's, yeah, it's I mean, I don't above really know what your I'm normal talking about. Level. Yeah. I mean, like one of the things that also happened that again, like the diagnosis helped me make sense of was I would get incredibly extroverted. Mm. Like I would want to meet people and talk to people, which is not me. Like I would get just really like, yeah, like it was almost like being on ecstasy. Like, <laughs> Let's go out to parties and, and yeah. meet people where the, yeah. where the humans and, and the alcohol you know. are. Yeah, let's go where the humans and alcohol are. Yeah, it'd be fun, you know? And that's just not and, – and I think also – I remember my therapist at the time. I remember I called her from like South by Southwest, and I was in the middle of, of something. And I was telling her about like the, the stuff I was going to and the people I was meeting. And she was like, Anna, are you – do you feel like this is – what you want to be doing. I don't remember what she said exactly, but it was one of the first times that I feel like somebody said, this is not quite right. So when you were using, when you were drinking heavily, did, 
did that blot out the lows of the depression or did you still get the lows of the depression? You know, it's hard to, t- it's hard to say because the drinking just got so bad. I do think that it started out as a way to regulate the ups more than the downs. So they don't get too up? Like, I mean, it was like a way to like letting off the energy, like, you know, a little bit just like, oh, we're in college, we're going to go party now, it's the weekend, but maybe a little more desperate than that for me, like a little more like functional, like I need to go do this. And then it became for everything, like for a lot of alcoholics, like use it, you know, when you're happy, when you're sad, it's regulating. Like it is technically a depressant, but you know, at first for a long time, it could, it could make me happy. And then towards the end, I think I've talked about this dude before towards the end, I just wanted oblivion. Yeah. Towards the end, I just hated myself so much that I just didn't want to be alive. I just didn't want to be me. Yeah. And, and that culminated in a, in an attempt to get rid of you. Yeah. A couple, a few. Yeah. So when you were in treatment and they said, Hey, what about bipolar? Had that crossed your mind at all before? Did you know what that was? I did. Um, my therapist, who is actually really great um, in D.C., I actually um, give her a lot of credit for my recovery, even though I didn't get sober seeing her, um, had brought it up. And then after my first suicide attempt, when I was in psych ward, it was brought up in this really like kind of maybe, you know, you should consider and that's actually where they put me. Now, actually, I mean, that's what they told me, but I think maybe they really thought it because the dosage of Seroquel they put me on was like pretty high and it kind of turned me into a zombie a little bit. I had like no energy. Yeah. So, I mean, it did come up before. I look back and see it more. And also it's funny. I remember talking to a few people from my college years and, um, one of them in particular expressed surprise that I turned out to be an alcoholic. But when I told him I was had bipolar disorder, he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Saw that one. <laughs> That's Anna Marie Cox. You can listen to her on her podcast with friends like these. Next time on Depression Mode, mental illness doesn't affect just one person. It affects everyone that person knows and loves. Stephanie's brother had a heroin addiction. I was trying so hard because I I knew rationally, like, I I have to be his ally and I have to be his support system. And if I cut him off or scream and yell at him or or give in to the anger that I'm feeling and respond and react from that place, that I'm going to lose him. So I was, like, playing a part almost. Yeah, tell me anything. I'm here for you. Why are you doing this to yourself? Can you go get help? I mean, it's like, and then inside just like screaming. Stephanie whittles wax and me on the pain of losing a brother. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. It might help them. Also, something that really matters a lot, do hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations going. That's what we're trying to do. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255 or 1-800-273-TALK. If you forget that number, Google the word suicide, and that number is the first result you get. Google made sure of that. 
The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Depression Mode is your show too. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about. We take requests. You can email us at our electric mail address, depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. Lots of different topics. I swing by sometimes as well. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I have notes and thoughts and discussions on all of our episodes there as they come out. Plus some fun and silly stuff too. It's free to subscribe. I'm on Twitter at John Moe, all one word. Hello, credits listeners. The B in Rutherford B. Hayes stood for Butherford. Yep, Rutherford Butherford Hayes. Not really. It stood for Burchard, which is just as weird as Butherford. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hi, it's Bill Radke in Seattle. You're not doing it wrong. Just begin again. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.